Good morning and a warm welcome to you all to Ladywell Baptist Church and our service of worship this morning. It's great to be together at the beginning of a new week and to worship God. And as we do that, we know that this week is Pentecost. It is uh, 50 days after Easter and we celebrate that uh, day in the early life of the church as the disciples gather together receive God's Spirit, this great outpouring of God's Spirit that fills them and empowers them, enables them to go out into Jerusalem and to preach the gospel and not just to share the good news that Jesus has come to be uh, the Savior of the world, but to preach it in, in such a way that men and women from all over the Roman Empire, it didn't matter if they were from Rome or Jerusalem or Alexandria and Egypt or Syria or wherever it might be, they came and they were able to hear the disciples share the gospel in their own language so they could understand it and then take that message back to the countries, the nations that they were from, and share it. And so the church, beginning in Jerusalem, really at Pentecost, exploded and grew all over the Roman Empire. And we are here uh, worshiping God as a result of the beginning of that ministry at Pentecost. And so it's a great opportunity for us to celebrate the power of God at work in the lives of his disciples and also for us to come in humility, asking that God would continue to work in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, that we would have the strength and the power to go out and to share the good news of the gospel uh, with a world that desperately needs to hear of the hope of God, the hope of salvation, so that the world might be transformed and the kingdom of God might grow. In our time together this morning, we're going to consider God's word, we're going to pray, we're going to sing. But before we do all of that, we're going to hear uh, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 143 that we would um, understand the, the, the posture, as it were, that we are to have as we come to worship together. We don't rush into God's presence. We don't come uh, with many things on our minds. We focus ourselves. And so we hear Psalm 143. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. And that is very much our prayer as we come to our worship uh, this morning that we would hear of the unfailing steadfast love of the Lord because we put our trust in him and we want to know more about his goodness and his greatness, his mercy, his majesty, his holiness and his power. And we want God's spirit to lead us on, to guide us so that we might know how we are to live, not just in our time together this morning, but in this coming week, that we would be prepared to worship God in an ongoing way and to witness to him, to share the good news of the gospel as his disciples did in Jerusalem all those years ago. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seems to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Hello! I hope you're all keeping well and managing to remain positive. Uh, as we are reminded in the Proverbs, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Anyway, let us pray. Loving God, we come before you and ask you to plant a seed of stillness in our souls and to help us find the peace of your presence. Loving God, you are our creator, the one who knitted us together and who knows us so well. We confess that we don't always turn to you, but help us to trust you and keep you central in our lives. Keep us, good Lord, under the shadow of your mercy in this time of uncertainty and distress. Sustain and support the anxious and fearful and lift up all who are brought low, that we may rejoice in your comfort, knowing that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gracious God, give skill, sympathy and resilience to all who are caring for the sick and your wisdom to those searching for a cure. Strengthen them with your spirit that through their work many will be restored to health through Jesus Christ our Lord. God of love and hope, you made the world and care for all creation. Be with all who are worried, ill or anxious and help them to find peace. Help us to put our trust in you and keep us safe. To your love and protection we commit each other and all those we love, knowing that you alone are our sure defender. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've perhaps been encouraged over this past week to read government guidelines and to hear on the news that uh, lockdown restrictions are beginning to be relaxed. Perhaps like me, you've had also a little sense of frustration that although it's great to have some increase in our freedom, uh, we're reminded that it's going to be a long time before things get back to normal. But that sense of anticipation, that waiting for something that we are really longing for, only serves to increase the joy we will have when that day comes, when lockdown is finished, when we can just get back to our lives the way we want to live them. And we find that very much in Scripture. All the way through the Old Testament, there has been the promise of a Savior that will come and deal with uh, the problem of sin in the lives of men and women in this world. But we find also that there has been a promised day coming where God's kingdom will come, where there will be the beginning of his reign on the world so that sin will be finally and fully dealt with. So that joy and peace and satisfaction will come, that man will live with God and there will be no more struggle between the two, no more division between the two. 
And that has been keenly anticipated by God's people for centuries, millennia. It's been very keenly anticipated by Jesus' disciples as he came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand and they followed him and served with him for three years and now we find the kingdom of God has begun, it has come. It's not here in all of its fullness, but it's begun in some small way and they are going to play their part in seeing it grow and expand and cover the whole world. This waiting has only served to increase their joy when the day finally comes. And now it's here and we remember that every um, year on Pentecost Sunday. And we don't just remember that this was an event that happened, but we remember we live in light of that day where the church really began. It was established and began to thrive and flourish, and we are here as a result of that. But we continue to serve, empowered by that same Spirit of God, filled and sent out into the world to serve God by the strength he gives us through his own Spirit to see his kingdom grow. So as we today look back, we also want to look forward and think, what does being filled by the Spirit of God, as all Christians are, what does that mean for us as we look to the future? Not just the end of lockdown, but as we look to the future and the growing of God's kingdom and ultimately the return of Jesus and the the conclusion, the consummation of that kingdom, its fullness coming. So we will live with and know God uh, and will do so forever in perfect harmony and unity and love. Well, we find in Acts chapter 2 a description of the Spirit coming and falling upon those disciples. And so we can understand our own place and how God's Spirit interacts with us and enables us. And what all of this is for, which is ultimately our question that we need to answer today. And so we find in the opening verses that the Spirit of God comes upon the believers of Jesus with power. There came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where the disciples had all gathered together. Now they're in this house. Jesus had told his disciples um, not to go out into Jerusalem but to wait after his ascension, his death and his resurrection, um, and he made many resurrection appearances to his disciples, to hundreds of disciples, and then he ascended to heaven and said to his disciples to wait before going out into the world to preach the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom had come and there was a way for sinners to enter into that kingdom. Wait until my helper comes and empowers you, equips you. So the disciples were gathering together, and as they did so, there was this sound from heaven, this mighty rushing wind that filled the house where they were sitting, and it was so noisy that all the neighbors in the street begin to gather together to come around, verse 6 tells us, to find out what's going on. And Scripture uses a description like this, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and the idea is to, to get across the power of that mighty rushing wind, not simply a sound, but all of the power that is bound up in the rushing of wind when you hear it. And we might have the idea um, here of um, lying at night and hearing the wind 
whistling around the house, almost lifting the roof of the house. Last week when uh, I was recording our service, the wind was whistling around the building and you got a, a sense that it was lifting the whole roof of the building. You could hear the creaking and the groaning of the building in stress as the wind pressed it and pulled it and lifted it and pushed it. And that is the idea that we have here. That the wind is this mighty force that we can't see. In many ways, we can't even really explain. We don't really know where it's going to come from. But we feel its power as it pushes and pulls and presses upon us. And Luke is telling us that something very powerful is happening to the disciples. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples are being surrounded and filled with power from heaven. But why? Why is this happening? The disciples have followed Jesus around for three years. They've talked about the coming kingdom of God. They've performed miracles and all without this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So why bother with this now? And was the Spirit of God not already with them? Was the Spirit of God not with the believers in the Old Testament? So in what sense is this new and is this different? Well, To think about it perhaps in two ways might be helpful, that we have in the Old Testament and in the lives of the disciples before Pentecost, the Spirit of God certainly was um, living in them, was with them and empowered them. But we might think of it this way. Uh, When I was growing up, my family went on holiday every year to Blair Athol, which is a lovely part of of Scotland to go on holiday. And we went there every year. And in the town, there is uh, a mill. And over the years that we were there on holiday, uh, the mill was maintained and then was taken over by a baker and was actually used. I don't know if he ground his own flour, it would seem a waste not to, but it was fed by a stream and the stream turned this huge water wheel on the outside, which turned all the machinery and ultimately turned uh, these big millstones inside that ground, uh, ground the flour, prepared the flour for use in baking. And in the Old Testament, we have something like that. The Spirit of God is flowing constantly towards God's people and is used to empower them to live for him. At Pentecost, we have a slightly different picture. Now, Blair Athol isn't all that far from Pitlochry. And in Pitlochry, you have not a, a, a flour mill that's fed by a stream. You have a hydroelectric dam that's fed by an entire loch. And when the dam is opened, the the whole weight, the pressure of all this water uh, stored up in this log pours into the hydroelectric dam through a turbine and it drives the turbine at an absolutely ferocious rate, generating electricity for the surrounding area. And if you've ever been to a hydroelectric dam where uh, water is flowing through it, it's amazing to see the power of this massive jet of water uh, fountaining out the front of this dam as it uh, runs through the turbine and generates electricity. And that is what we have here at Pentecost and on into the New Testament through to today. The Spirit of God is still moving amongst his people, but instead of being uh, something gentle, uh, being limited in its power to a specific area, to one mill, we find that its power is hugely magnified and increased such that it's like a river running through a hydroelectric dam that changes a whole region, brings power to a whole region. At Pentecost, you have this point where God's kingdom grows beyond Israel, 
beyond Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding region and out into the whole world. It impacts the entire world. And so we have the Spirit of God poured out in a far more significant, substantial way than it had been in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. What God has in mind at Pentecost is what he said to his people multiple times in the Old Testament, that Israel, that the kingdom of God will be a light to the nations, not just to themselves. And we're reminded in the coming of Jesus that Israel failed in being a light to the nations. They focused only on themselves. And Jesus comes to be the true heir of Abraham, the true son of Abraham, as we've been thinking about in Genesis, becomes, in a sense, Israel and goes as a light to the world. And now he is pouring his spirit into his disciples so they can continue this work. And the kingdom of God will spread through the whole world and will touch all people. You can see something of the impact of this, not just in the um, in a global sense, but in a personal sense in the lives of individuals. When you see somebody like Jesus or like Paul or like Peter, and you see in their ministry from this point onwards, you see um, Paul, for example, cannot be held down, cannot be stopped from preaching the gospel. He is nearly stoned to death, but he simply gets back up and goes on preaching the gospel. He is beaten, but they can't stop him. He's put in jail and he preaches to the guards and many of them hear the gospel uh, and are saved. There is nothing you can do to this man to stop him because of the power that is at work through him by God's Holy Spirit. It's driving him like a turbine in a hydroelectric dam. So the question we have is, why don't we experience something like this? We see it in the lives of all of the apostles. I think it's possibly because in spite of the massive power of God at work here, we have alternatives. In our lives, we don't experience this power because our automatic reaction to life is not to rely upon God, but to cope through our own means. And whether that be through investing ourselves in our work, our family, our friendships, whatever it is, we pour ourselves into things to cope with all the stresses and strains of life. We don't cast ourselves upon God and rely upon the power of his spirit to enable us to walk through these things. Or we flee from struggles altogether. We bury our head in the sand or or we simply distance, our, distance ourselves from any sorts of difficulties or stress or hard situations because we want no part in it. We don't cast ourselves upon God and ask that his spirit would empower us and equip us to engage in that situation and so carry on through it and overcome it. But that is what the Spirit of God comes to do, to empower and to equip. And we see a sign of that in the power displayed when it comes. And we see it ourselves when we first become Christians. When our lives are transformed and we are empowered, we have this tremendous sense of love for God, of appreciation for him, a great desire to read his word and study it and understand it, a great burden to tell all of our friends and family and all about the God who has saved us, that he might save them. We feel that power. But as time goes on, we find alternatives that we are willing to rely upon. And so we don't sense that anymore. We don't 
turn and trust upon Jesus as we ought to. But the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost didn't just bring power in some vague, diffuse sense into the lives of his disciples, that it just gave them the ability to carry on and to preach the gospel. We find that it was power for a specific reason. Again, to think of the the hydroelectric dam or even the, the, the flour mill, power isn't simply poured out. The water doesn't simply flow across the dam or flow into and out of the dam. It is specifically channeled through so that its power might be um, made use of. It might be directed and guided to a specific purpose. And so we find that the Spirit of God doesn't simply come bringing power. He comes to bring peace. So when the Spirit is poured out, something like tongues of fire appear over the disciples' heads. And when we read that, you might have thought that sounds rather odd. And it is a very odd picture, but divided tongues of fire, as the passage says, means something like there is one source of fire that is split, that is divided amongst all the disciples gathered. It rests upon each of them. And the image of tongues of fire or little columns of fire is straight out of the Old Testament. We find that fire is used again and again and again in the Old Testament to symbolize the presence of God. So it might be Moses and the burning bush that is not consumed as it burns. The presence of God is there. It might be as the people of Israel are led by Moses out of Egypt through the wilderness towards Israel. They are led by a column of smoke by day and fire by night. The presence of God goes before them as they journey through the wilderness. It might be Elijah on Mount Carmel when he makes his sacrifice and fire pours down from heaven and sets fire to the sacrifice upon the altar. There are numerous references in the Old Testament of fire and it simply symbolizes the presence of God is here in a particular way for a particular purpose at a particular time. And in a sense, we can think of it in a very diminished sense of being something like the flag flying over Buckingham Palace when the Queen is in residence. It symbolizes that somebody of importance is in residence in this place. Their presence is here with this person. And now we have it on the heads of the disciples of Jesus. One fire divided uh, amongst them all. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist tells his um, followers, all those people that come out to hear his message and be baptized with him for the, the forgiveness of their sins, for repentance, a sign of their repentance. He tells them that there is one coming who is greater than I, who will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here it is. The time has come. The day they've been waiting for, anticipating, has finally arrived. And the presence of God is personally with each one of these disciples. Now, we have to understand the significance of that. The personal presence of God isn't something usual in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God is in the middle of his temple or the tabernacle before the temple was built. And in order to gain access to God, you had a whole system of of priests and servants within the temple and you would go to them and they would stand between you and God. And so you had priests and prophets who would mediate between you and God. You had no direct access. But when Jesus comes, he gives us direct access. When he dies, the curtain in the temple that separates the presence of God from the people of God is torn in two. And we find now that the presence of God is dwelling directly with each individual one of his disciples. And so God's presence is 
personally known. And we assume that today because we're, if you've grown up in church or you've spent any time in church, that's how we talk, talk about God knows us and we interact with him through prayer and worship and reading his word and we know him personally. But that was not the case in that way in the Old Testament. But now it is. And so the coming of Jesus heralds this whole new beginning in the life of people with their God. And although all these people are all different, they're all different individuals from different places, some of them were wealthy, some of them were professionals, some of them were tradesmen and so on, they all knew the presence of God in that moment. And we find that we have this great um, transformation coming where it's not simply that God is present with people, but that God comes and brings peace to those people. And that is the purpose of the Spirit coming at Pentecost. It is that the power of God coming so that people will be not reconciled to God, but will know that they are reconciled to God. They will know his presence in their lives and will be equipped to then go into the world and tell the whole world that they can have this peace regardless of where they're from. It doesn't matter if they're Jews from Jerusalem or if they're Gentiles from Rome or from somewhere in Egypt. It makes no difference. God can be with them personally because of what Jesus has done for them. And this is what Pentecost symbolizes. So you have this list of places that all of these Jews who come to hear what's going on and to find out what on earth this noise is, this great wind that's rattling around this place signifies. And it might seem ordinary to us. It's just a list of place names, isn't it? But there is something significant to the place names. So Luke tells us we've got Jews from every nation under heaven, from Parthia, Media, Elam, Mesopotamia, which is the Eastern world. We find that we have people from Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, the northern part of the world up towards Turkey. So Israel north, the northern part of the world. We have people from Egypt and Libya and Rome and Crete. It's the western part of the world. And then we find we have people from Arabia, which is the south. So we have people from every point of the compass present here in Jerusalem at this time, for Pentecost. That's what they're there for. And they're present when the Spirit of God is poured out. Now, if we were to read um, in the Old Testament, we would read of many occasions that speaks of just this thing, where you have people from all over the world that are gathered together to Jerusalem, and they will learn about God in that place. The Psalms, and particularly that the prophets, both the major prophets and the minor prophets in the Old Testament, speak about this again and again and again, that people from all over the world will flock together to learn of God at Jerusalem. And now Pentecost has come. But we also have, in our series in Genesis, one great event where people from all over the world were together in one place. If you remember in Genesis 10 and 11, Noah's family had been spreading out all over the world, but instead of spreading out across the world, they decided to stop and gather together again in Babel. And they built this tower to elevate themselves to the position of God. And God, to frustrate that and to, to get them to do what he commanded them to do, to fill the world and, and to, to rule over it, he comes down and confuses their language. Language becomes a barrier at the Tower of Babel so that people can't understand each other and get frustrated and fall out and divide and scatter all over the world in their tribes and in their family groups. 
Now at Pentecost, that barrier of language for the first time in millennia has been overcome by the presence of God's Spirit as it's poured out on the disciples. So where division exists along national lines, which is embodied perhaps in no better way than the division of languages, we find that the disciples stand up and preach the gospel and all the people who come are astonished because they can hear in their own language. It's like the Tower of Babel of Babel has been undone. People aren't babbling at one another in confusion. They're hearing one message regardless of where they've come from. And this is what the Spirit of God came to do. It came to bring peace not just with the division between men and God as Jesus reconciles us to God through his death for our sins so that we are made holy and can be in God's presence and know him. We find that God brings reconciliation between people from every tribe and tongue and nation. There is no cause for division now. And this is what the Spirit of God does at Pentecost. The church goes from being a Jewish thing based in Jerusalem to being a global, worldwide movement of disciples telling everyone of the mighty works of God in a way they can understand. And this has been the great triumph of the church, of the Christian faith, down through the millennia. We are not like other religions that are bound to a particular type of culture or a particular part of the world. That you can be a Christian and be an Inuit Eskimo or be someone who lives in Saharan Africa, or somebody who lives in urban Tokyo in Japan. It doesn't matter. You can live out with consistency the Christian faith in any one of those places through whatever language or culture you have, as long as you're being consistent with uh, with God's word, because of God's spirit, because God is with you wherever you are in those places. You don't need to speak a special language. We don't need to learn Greek or Hebrew for all it's great, and I would encourage you to learn Greek or Hebrew and to read God's word in in the original languages, but you don't need to, to be a Christian. You don't need to say special words in either Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic in order to become a Christian or to pray as we find in other religions in the world. We don't need to become like the culture of another part of the world. You can be distinctively Scottish and yet still also be a Christian. And so we find the Spirit of God reconciles God and man and men and women together. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in the world is to bring peace by pointing everyone to Jesus. And just as a a quick aside here for your encouragement, that when we talk about God's Spirit, there is a great desire among many people to focus upon the Spirit of God himself. He is a person not just a thing, a force, a floating cloud. He is a person of the Trinity. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three are equal, co-eternal. All three are one, God, but three persons. And so when we think of the Holy Spirit, we must remember what he came to do. He came to point us always to Jesus. And so it's not right for us to focus overly on the Spirit of God and the power and the gifts that he brings as an end in himself because the Spirit of God's desire is that we would love Jesus, serve Jesus, worship God because of our relationship restored through Jesus. And so it's right that we remember that and not focus overly on uh, the work of the Spirit as a thing in itself. It is um, an aid to move us towards Jesus and to tell others about him. And so the Spirit comes in power to bring peace. 
And lastly, we find the Spirit comes to bring purpose to God's people. The disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit as John had prophesied, John the Baptist had prophesied early in Jesus' ministry. And we note that at no point later in their lives does this ever happen again. We find that in the same way we are baptized with the Holy Spirit when we are saved, it is a one-time thing. However, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul tells us that when we become Christians, we are to seek being filled with the Holy Spirit continually. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit is something that happens as God equips us for worship and for growth as disciples and for witnessing to our faith, for sharing our faith with other people. It's not something that's meant to make us feel good, although it might, but it's something that's meant to enable us to see Jesus as being the center of our lives, the one that we follow, the one we obey, and to equip us to obey and follow him. And draw others in that they might be saved also. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. It drives us to focus in on Jesus in everything we do, say or think. In in a sense, it, it narrows our focus down on life so that whatever we look at in life, we see through that filter of Jesus and our relationship with him, our love for him, our desire for him in our lives and to see him um, made much of, worshipped in the world. And when the disciples are unable to speak in tongues, it is for that one reason alone, to spread the good news of the gospel, to point people to Jesus. This isn't a gift that was given to the disciples forever to use in any time. They were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance, as God directed them. And we notice they're not filled with the Holy Spirit to sit in the upper room themselves and simply have a good time together, entertain one another. The Spirit of God gave them utterance to speak in other languages so that they would go out into the world and communicate with the world, with other people. And we're reminded in this that the Holy Spirit's work is to empower us for that end. We are a missionary people by our very nature. It's baked into who you are as a Christian man or woman that you are compelled to go into the world and to share your faith with other people in whatever way you can. Some respond to the the disciples by asking what's going on here, what does this mean, and some react with scorn. These people are just drunk. They're, They're just babbling nonsense. They don't hear, they don't get it. But the Spirit comes and gives the disciples something to do, and they do it. And so we find ourselves in that same place. The Spirit of God falls upon us when we become Christians. We are empowered and equipped. And even as we go out in the power of God to preach the gospel and serve our community, some people are going to reject us. And and there is nothing that we can do about that. We simply have to persevere. But we've done the right thing by sharing the gospel. But some people will hear and will respond, and will be transformed, and will receive the Spirit of God themselves. And when they do, they are reconciled to us. We are made one with them. We draw them into our fellowship, and bless them, and encourage them, and build them up, and then do what? Send them out to go and share the gospel with all of their family and friends. This is the most amazing thing 
about this passage in Acts chapter 2 for me is that God isn't stopped by the problems of culture or race or geography, not simple distance, nothing. He plows right through the middle of all of that, empowers his disciples so that the gospel can go forth and bring sinners to repentance, regardless of how big a sinner you are, of what culture you come from, of what religion you may have grown up in, of what language you speak, whatever it might be. You can be transformed by God's power. And if you're a Christian, you can go out. You can go out and share the good news of the gospel with others because it is not in your strength. It is in the strength of God. And the great relief to me as a Christian is I know when I go out, it is not resting upon me whether sinners are saved. It rests upon God. It is his power within me that enables me to preach the gospel. It is his power that will convict that person of their sin or not and will transform them or not. And so I know that it is all upon God's shoulders. And so I am free to simply go out and live my life for Christ as ably as I can, as enthusiastically, as passionately, as zealously as I can and know that God will do the rest. And so I'm able to enjoy that life, that work, that labor. As you read from this passage in Acts, we find the pace the church moves at is utterly astonishing. It explodes. It erupts into the Roman Empire. And we find that thousands of men and women are saved and are brought into the church over a a period of days. Now, this is a reduced history. We don't get a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of everything. But we see how the church grows rapidly. And it's all because of the Spirit of God come to empower the disciples of Jesus in the work that he has called them to do. It's also in part the attitude of these men and women. They've been waiting for this for so long and now the chance has come, so they go. And I want to challenge you today in closing. We've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to return But we've been waiting for 2,000 years to see our community utterly transformed by the gospel, to see the kingdom of God here in this place, to see our family and our friends transformed and know the joy that we have of our salvation. We've been waiting for so long, but there's no need to wait. The day that you became a Christian, you were filled and empowered by God's Spirit to see that work done. So go. We've been reminded forcibly by God during this lockdown. We don't have the the option of just being a church gathering together for our own enjoyment. Look, it's good to enjoy our time together on Sunday and Wednesday night and so on. But we've been driven back into our own communities, the streets that we live in, the the little groupings uh, of people uh, all around us. We've been driven back to those places. And I think this is a marvelous opportunity to to take seriously what we read of in Acts chapter 2, that we've been filled with the Spirit to go and preach the gospel to the people that live next door to you that live across the street, that, that you see in the shop at that same time every day when it is, whenever it is you go to the shop to buy your bread or your milk or, or whatever it might be. Because this is who we are. We are a spirit-filled, empowered people. And it's all for the glory of God. So as you go into the coming week, know that you go not just in the presence of God as the disciples went, but in the power of God for his glory to serve him in this world. Amen.
And now, as our time of worship comes to an end, I pray that you would go into the coming week knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.